Today, we'll be hearing the preaching of God's Word from Acts chapter 13. And we'll start from verse 26, and we'll go down to verse 39. Please rise. This is God's holy word. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, They asked Pilate to have him executed, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up for the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to our fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. By raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Join me in prayer once more. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for Jesus, who is the word made flesh. And we pray, Lord, as we sit now under the preaching of your word, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and allow our hearts to grasp the things that you have set aside for your holy people. We pray the gospel news of Jesus would fall fresh again that you would take us to deeper repentance and deeper faith, so that indeed, as we have read and will now hear, find freedom in you. We thank you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we've took a pretty long hiatus. During the summertime, we went through the book of Daniel with a short series called In Between Two Worlds. Uh, In the spring, we paused our series in Acts, and today... After a few months, we're going to pick back up in our Acts series titled The Church. And as all good Presbyterians do, we'll just pick up right where we left off in Acts 13. Uh, If you look up, there's a map. And um, yes, feeling very scholarly this morning. We're going to take a look here because as we jump back into the series of Acts, we're going to be looking at chapter 13 today and 14 next week. And in these two chapters, we see the accounts of Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. It's a mission report. And those of you who know, like the Winter Soldier, mission report. In verse, or chapters 13 and 14 
tells us of such. So if you look at the map here, the next two weeks we're going to be going through and hearing the accounts of what the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and those who were with them endured, experienced, and went through through their journey. So they begin here on the top right in Antioch. And as they travel, they're going to go into the island of Cyprus, which actually Barnabas is from, and they'll cover the entirety of that island from coast to coast. And then they're going to make their way up to the southern region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Pastors love saying that little phrase. It makes you feel so scholarly. Modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor. But they go up there, as you see, and then they'll continue up to Antioch, not to be confused to their starting point, but this Antioch is in Poseidon. And then they continue in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And all this to say, the next two weeks, we're not covering a mission you know, team or missions trip for two weeks where the last two days are reserved for sightseeing, but we're covering a missions account of Apostle Paul and Barnabas, disciples of Christ, as they go out in some ways, to make disciples, starting from Barnabas' hometown, Cyprus, to the local communities, and to the world around them. You see what I did there? It kind of overlaps with our mission and vision. I know I'm conflating the two. Uh, Don't chastise me. So as we go through this, I just wanted us to look at the map so we can have some kind of visual of their journey Because a lot of times as we read the Bible, we hear from there, they went here, then they set sail. And it just, it feels like it happened so fast. We're not able to appreciate the movement and the dynamic that is experienced through many of the characters in the Bible. Again, the point of this journey was to make disciples of Jesus. To take the good news of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, and to share this to everyone, the Jew first and then the Greek or the Gentiles. And for the most part, as we will see in the next few weeks, Paul and Barnabas, as they traveled from city to city, they were driven out. The Jewish leaders, out of jealousy, drove them out. And at one point, we're here next week, in Lystra, the Apostle Paul was beat and stoned, and and they drug him out. They, They dragged him out drug them out. They took them out to the gate, presumed to be dead. And so and, and on, on one hand, when we, when we look at the account of these first missionaries, so to speak, we can see it through the lens of a pretty pitiful disaster. But on the other hand, as we'll see, many also came to believe in Jesus. Many came to embrace This message of Jesus, who dies for their sins and forgives them and gives them salvation. And and an interesting to note is, as they go back, once they reach Derby, as they backtrack, they'll actually go back the same route. Back to the same towns that they were chased out of. Why? So they can continue to encourage the new believers and the churches that were established along the way. So we see a very encouraging but also a tough account of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as they were sent out from Antioch into the regions ahead. And as we narrow in, our focus today is going to be in Antioch, again here in 
Pisidia, not at their starting point, but about halfway in their journey. And we're going to see that Paul's main point as he addresses the people in the synagogue here is that in Jesus, there is forgiveness and freedom. So if we can go to the next slide, the main point is simply this, that there is freedom and forgiveness in Jesus. And we'll spend the remainder of our time unpacking what this means. We'll look at the history of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the invitation of the gospel. So first, the history of the gospel. Before we jump into verses 26 and onward, which we read, I want to visit briefly verse 13 through 25 that kind of sets up the context here for us. In 13 to 25, it tells us that it was the Sabbath day. They're in the synagogues and that they had just read from the laws and the prophets as the ruling elders, so to speak, there were leading the worship here. And much like today, they were gathered here and they heard the reading of God's word And then the ruling elders turned to Paul and said, Brothers, if any of you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. So then we're told that Paul stands up and motioning with his hands. I don't know what the motion is. I don't know if that's something in antiquity that's lost, perhaps. Or a... a, But he motioned with his hand and essentially gave his sermon. And as he gives his sermon, it's important to note that he's addressing, quote here, the men of Israel and those who fear God or God-fearers. Essentially, Paul is addressing the people who are gathered to worship on that day in the synagogue who are still following the Old Testament ways of the religion. And, and, and I don't know what the scriptures that were read through this time of worship was, but you could imagine that Paul is, is almost expounding and exegeting and preaching Christ from this. As all the people are gathered here, they've heard from now the prophets and the law, and now Paul here is going to, through the Old Testament scripture, preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And this is his angle, right? He starts by recounting And reminding the people there who have a very good understanding of their history and past, he says that all throughout the ages and stages of the people's history, God has provided to them leaders. And he goes in and recounts this. He basically says, in the beginning, God chose their founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Perhaps he's saying, you know, through these men who are broken and sinful, God used them to lead his people. He'll go on to say that after this, God then also chose Moses as he used him to usher his people out of Egypt through the wilderness, then raising up Joshua to bring them through to the land of Canaan, to the land that they were inherit. And then he says, people, you know, that after the founding fathers and after Moses and Joshua, as they came to the land, God gave to us judges to help discern with wisdom and humility what is righteous and what is wrong. And as time went on, everyone you know that God provided for us prophets to speak God's word to us. God broke the silence and through his prophets spoke to us once more. 
and goes on with the history lesson. He says, and then people you know that as everyone cried out for a king, God raised up Saul and then David to rule over and protect his people. More so, he says, you also know that through the line of David came a savior named Jesus, the promised one. You also know in the recent past, this is who John the Baptist was testifying about. And so Paul is taking from the Old Testament setting in history and text, and he's trying to help the people there see Christ. So that now in verse 26 to 29, having spelled all this out, Paul tells the audience that all of these leaders was provided to them by God. Through all the ages and stages of this people, all these people, all these leaders, all these rulers, these prophets, kings, and priests were pointing to not simply an earthly promised land or an earthly kingdom, but an eternal and heavenly land and kingdom. What Paul's saying is, undergirding this history and movement of salvation that God has been working is the good news that Jesus is the one that was to come, that Jesus is the one that was promised, that Jesus is the ultimate appointed leader. And Paul is trying to help them to see that in this Jesus, we don't simply get another prophet or another priest or another king who is, who is bound by time and then fades away for another to come. But in this Jesus, we have the final prophet who we know to be the word of God that was made flesh. In this Jesus, we have the final priest who he himself becomes the sacrifice for sins. In this Jesus, we have the final king who establishes his everlasting kingdom. Paul is saying that this message of salvation was given to the Old Testament followers so that they would know that it was all pointing to Jesus, the one who would lead them not simply to the promised land of milk and honey, not simply to a a kingdom of riches in this earth, but a land and a kingdom that flows with everlasting life and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But then Paul goes on to say, even though this message was proclaimed to you, even though every Sunday you hear the reading of God's word, you rejected it. Even though the message should have been so plain as day to you, you neither recognized or understood what was going on. And what Paul is saying here is, guys, listen. We gather here on the Sabbath day to worship. We hear the reading of the prophets and the law. And every week we come and every week we go and we're religious and we do our thing. But are we not forgetting the most important thing? Are we missing the whole point of all of this? And perhaps that's a question for you and I this morning. That as we go about our religion, our practice, our faith, our walk, as we come in and out Sunday after Sunday, as we hear the reading of God's word, as we hear about Jesus and the gospel message proclaimed, do we so often, like the people here, hear it over and over and over and over again, 
Have we grown up with it in youth group and college and all the ministries? Yet when we hear it, it falls flat and we miss the reality that all of this is pointing and is supposed to be pointing us to Jesus. Verse 27, they did not recognize nor understand, so they rejected, they crucified. So friends, I I want us to think a little bit and hopefully stimulate in some ways how we can relate to what is going on here in Acts 13. In what ways through the stages of your life has God graciously led you, provided for you, sustained you to this point? I think, I think if, if I were to ask each and every one of you, why are you here at church today? Many of us will probably have a testimony that comprises something along the lines of, this happened in my life and I realized I needed to get right with God. So-and-so talked to me at work, or I was experiencing this, and then I heard this, and I realized I wanted to learn more about God. I wanted to know more about who I am. I wanted to learn more about who this Jesus is, and now I'm here. And although many of us can't fully understand everything in Scripture or fully articulate all the doctrines and theology, we come and we hear and we listen in hopes that as we are sitting under God's Word, it would transform us as it points us to Christ, to be made more like Christ. But friends, how often do we hear it simply as a habit simply as something that we do on a Sunday morning before we can get to the football game, to the lunch, to the gathering? How often when we are sitting here in worship do we miss or just dismiss the gospel message of Jesus? And just as Paul is warning the people, friends, open your eyes, open your ears, see that Everything we're doing, our community groups, our events, Sunday worship, the praise team, all of this is supposed to help us point to Jesus. Jesus is not just another preacher with inspirational words for the week that you can hang on to like a crumb. But he's, he's the life-giving word of God. Jesus isn't just another priest who imparts forgiveness through the veil of a confession booth. But he's the one who has sacrificed and laid down his own life, paid the cost of your sins, so that you can be light from the burden of it to come to him. He's not just another king or a leader or a ruler who has its own political agenda to take advantage of you. No, he's the one who will always protect you and keep you from being taken advantage of. Friends, we're here to worship. We're here to sing, we're here to pray, we're here to listen to all and engage these things so that we can see more of Christ, so we can deepen our faith and trust in him. The power of the gospel, second point. Though Jesus was rejected and crucified, verse 30 begins by saying, but God raised him from the dead. but God raised him from the dead. And for many of us, again, who grew up in the church, we know Jesus died, and then he rose again from the dead. Cool. What about it? Tell me something a little more interesting. Did it happen in modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor? (laughs) The familiarity of this good news often falls flat to us. But this is why it's so important that in verse 30, it just turns 
Paul goes through all the leaders of the different ages and stages of the history of Israel. And then when he gets to Jesus, he says, Jesus died, but then God raised him from the dead. See, none of the other leaders of the past were raised from the dead. When their time was done, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Saul, David, all the judges, when their time was done, they were put in their tomb, and they didn't come back from the dead. But on the third day after the crucifixion, the tomb of Jesus was emptied. He was indeed raised from the dead. If Jesus was not the chosen one of God who was sent to be the final Savior once for all, for all people, God would have simply sent another prophet, priest, or king. However, having given up his own life for the sins of the world, he was raised from the dead, never to die again, with the power and authority to save all those who have been entrusted to him, as he was saying in the Gospel of John, of which I will lose not one. Look up with me in verse 36 to 37. This is what Paul continues to go on about. He says, For David, for even King David, whom all the Jews held in high esteem, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, meaning he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, death and decay. But he whom God raised up, this is referring to Jesus, did not see corruption. So if Jesus was the promised Savior for all sinners, and not only did he pay for our sins on the cross with his life, but then was raised with newness of life, then that makes him the only one worthy of worship. That makes him the only one worthy to believe in and have faith in. That makes him the only one worth coming to with our burdens, our guilt, our shame, our anxieties. If he who can conquer death was raised again and says, all who have been entrusted to me, I will lose not one, then who are we to worship besides him? And just as Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus to the people in the synagogue on that morning, having heard from the Old Testament, this morning we are hearing that same good news that through Jesus, there is forgiveness of sin and there is freedom. Once Paul expounds this to the congregation, they're left without excuse. In turn, they have to choose to either believe in this Jesus, who is the promised one, who is able to save, who is able to protect, who is able to forgive and give freedom, or they have to reject him. Here at the end of Paul's sermon, so to speak, he gives the invitation once more. And our last point, the invitation of the gospel. If you look at verse 38 and 39, this is what Paul concludes with. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this, sorry, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's interesting here that Paul is associating forgiveness of sins and freedom from everything. Forgiveness of sins and freedom from everything. See, the Bible doesn't see freedom as the world does. It's actually quite the opposite. The, the, the world views freedom as someone who is completely autonomous. 
They can make their own decisions, right? Freedom in the world's eyes is I can do what I want, when I want, how I want. But the reality is that the world's view of freedom is that it, it makes us slaves to our own desires. It's like an addict thinking that they have any choice or freedom at all. If, if you're addicted to freedom and your own autonomy, then you're essentially enslaved by it. But the Bible's view of freedom is one who completely accepts the forgiveness of God through Christ so that all of our decisions are not bound by the drive of self-preservation or self-actualization. The Bible's view of freedom, paradoxically, is that when we submit to Christ, all of our sins are forgiven in such a way that the world has no claim over us, that we are free to live in God's grace. We are freed from the fear of the unknown in the future. We are freed from the guilt and shame and burdens that we often work so hard to undo by good works or accolades or whatever religious program or paradigm we set up for ourselves. The biblical view of freedom is one where we are justified before our Creator in such a way that we can call him Father. Not only is Jesus the one who is able to forgive us of our sins with an everlasting efficacy because he was raised from the dead, but he also gives freedom from everything to those who come to him. This means nothing in the world can define us or have a claim over us. Your past mistakes, your current situation, mistakes in in, in, in the present or even to come, failures as a son or daughter or as a mother or father or brother or sister, your job or your career, the opinions of others, nothing can have claim over you because you are freed if forgiven in Christ. And so today's main point simply is that whenever we read from the Bible, whenever we preach, whenever we are trying to live out our faith, it is so that we can be more like and see Christ. Because for those who believe in Jesus, find forgiveness of sin and freedom from everything. And this was good news. This was supposed to be good news for all the hearers to say. If that's true, if there is genuine freedom and forgiveness in Jesus, then that's who I want. But many of those who heard that day in the synagogues and all the towns to come, still stuck in their old views, did not see this and continued to reject this. Nonetheless, the gospel continued to go forth and bring more believers, crossing ethnic and cultural boundaries. As we'll see, as Paul backtracks, there's churches and more disciples to encourage and spur on. But friends, this morning, as we've heard, the plain, perhaps non-exciting news of Jesus once more. My hope is that it would fall afresh, that it would ignite and fan the flames once more. My prayer is that the Lord would grant for some of you faith in Jesus for the first time, and for others of you that he would reestablish your faith in him once more. Friends, if, if, if all that we do in our faith and our walk 
in our community groups, in our churches, in our homes, our communities, and around the world doesn't help us and those who we engage with see more of Jesus, want more of Jesus, trust in Jesus, then all we are doing is simply following a religious structure that leads to nothing. Friends, can we turn our eyes to Jesus? Can we go to the Lord in prayer and ask that the good news of the gospel would fall fresh again in our lives? Only then can we go and make disciples who live out the gospel in word and deed. Only then can we hope to see the vision of God's kingdom coming and his will being done in our homes, in our communities, and in the world. It's all about Jesus, the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask, Lord, that the plain and simple yet powerful and transformative gospel of Jesus Christ will fall fresh on us again. Lord, many of us struggle to believe because of the sufferings that we've endured, because of the areas of the Bible we don't quite understand, because of the hypocrisy and the sins of the church and church leaders, and some of us just because we're, we're not sure how to even believe in something we don't fully understand. But God, we ask that the simple message of Jesus would fall afresh again and that by the help of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to come to a faith that with confidence knows who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us. We pray, Lord, in the next few moments and in the days to come, that you would help us to see our need for Jesus, our sinfulness, and how so often we are prone to wander. But we ask, Lord, that you would guide us continually by your Spirit, lead us to Christ, so that we would find forgiveness of sins and freedom from everything that tries to define us, measure us, and categorize us. Give us more of Christ, Lord. In him we know there is forgiveness and freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.